Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting these sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our third episode dedicated to Lockstyler Saga. Indeed. Yes. It feels like we've been working on this one for months already, John. Yeah, that's because we have. Yeah, well, I mean, if we have, then how is this only our third episode? Ah, you know. The math don't work. It's it's the lazy days of summer. It's time Ah. for catching up on household projects, spending time with family. I uh I decided it might be fun to do a bit of that. <laughs> Whoa, well, that's wonderful. I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Actually, I, I'm sure you needed to uh, to to do that after spending so much time with them on your sabbatical. I mean, I live in the house, same house as them, Andy. It's uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard not to spend time around them. Uh, okay, well, but yes, no, I I did. Uh, I put Lockstallet down for just a bit toward the end of the semester to play the role of husband and father for a while. Oh, look out, Jason Seaver! Johnny Sexton's coming for you. Jason Seaver. It's a <laughs> A little yeah. early for a Growing Pains reference, isn't it? I mean, is it ever too early? It's is that right? Gro- Jason Seaver's from Growing Pains, right? Yes, yes, of course. He's a uh, go. He's my go-to example for a good TV dad. Is he? Yes. Huh. Okay. Out of curiosity, do you have a backup, like a uh, Uncle <laughs> Phil or Jed Clampett or something like that? Jed Clampett. Yeah, he's a man with a nuanced approach to fatherhood, and you can't uh-huh. deny the value he brought to that family. Okay, sure, sure. But uh, both of your suggestions actually surprised me there. I would have figured you more for a Ward Cleaver type of guy. Oh, God, no. Ward Cleaver? No, he's the work all day and dispense wisdom after dinner kind of guy. Uh, That's right. he's, he's never around. He's emotionally unavailable, I would imagine. And he wears a suit. None of those things have anything to do with me. <laughs> poor Beaver. Yeah, poor Beaver indeed. Uh, but uh, uh, who's, your, who's your backup great father from TV? Was it Al Bundy for you? Uh, oh, good guess. No, uh, I'm going to stick close to the uh, the Jason Seaver model and go with Stephen Keaton from Family Ties. Uh-huh. He's warm. He's caring. He treats his children with respect, letting them form their own opinions, even when they run counter to his own sensibilities. He's a he's a good guy. And in his spare time, I believe he hunts down uh, giant sandworms, doesn't he? Isn't that? I don't am recall I, am, that. I, am I wrong about that? Is that a different... Is that Tremors or something? What is I'm that? I'm pretty sure he's in Tremors. <laughs> I don't recall. I think Michael Gross is in Tremors. Okay. Uh, somebody write it and tell me whether that's correct. All right. Well, yeah. That's uh, interesting. It's quite uh, a little thesis on fatherhood, though. Well, you know, fatherhood is a subject that I'm passionate about, and I know that you are, too. And uh, since we are recording this so close to the day itself, let me just say a happy Father's Day to you, John. I've Aww, seen you in you. action, and uh, I know how much you give to your kids. You are a remarkable father. Oh, shucks. Thanks, Andy. You're welcome. Uh, happy Father's Day to you, too, and Thanks. a happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Uh, I think the world needs more good fathers. Uh, feel free to take the Jed Clampett model, the the Al Bundy model, the Jason Seaver, even the Ron Swanson approach to fatherhood. Yes. The, now, why do I feel like, uh, especially since Ron Swanson was the last one, why do I feel like you're ranking those? Is Ron Swanson I mean, your look, favorite TV father? I'll never tell. Uh, but I think uh, <laughs> I think we know. Uh, speaking of fathers, John. Oh, look at that. Was that a was that a desperate transition back to Lockstall Saga? Desperate's a strong word, but it is a transition. Uh, all of this talk of TV fathers has me thinking about the fathers of the sagas that we've been reading. Oh boy. Uh, out of curiosity, who would you rank as your top one, two, three, whatever you can think of, uh, saga fathers? Surely not Hoskold from Lexella Saga. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I, I've seen nothing so far to indicate he's even a passable father to his children. Yeah. Uh, okay, so not Hoskold. Then who? Um, let me see. I'm going to say uh, Scarleg's stepson. Uh, oh, Thorgils. Obviously, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah he's man one of mine too. Yeah, of course. I mean, a guy who's willing to uh, shred his own body to provide milk for his son. Yeah. Now, uh, of course, you know, I was thinking about him as well. Um, mm-hmm. But then I remembered that he, he's on my list, but he also is the guy who uh, very, you know, he loses that same son. In, in That's the, not his fault. That's the that's that's the ocean. <laughs> I mean, he could have been holding on a little tighter, maybe. But he did also remember he did also fight a polar bear for his son. So. He did. Uh, when I really when I think father. of Saga Fathers, he, he, mm-hmm. that image, especially the one drawn by Matt Smith, where he's cradling yep. the baby and, yep. and uh, <laughs> suckling him at his bloody teat, uh, that's the first image that comes to mind when I think See? of Saga Fatherhood. Uh, I mean, we can also talk about you know Ale, uh, who writes mm. beautiful poetry about his children after they die, and of course has a soft spot for his daughters, which I know is uh, near and dear to your heart. Yes. Uh, we got Thor Goatleg. Oh, uh, yes. right, uh, for all you uh, adoptive fathers out there. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, I guess I'm going to actually, I won't say Haskell, but I will say Hrut uh, for quantity over quality. Uh, I believe <laughs> yes. I believe that we're going to find out in this saga that he's, uh, he's the father of what, about 26 children? Well, you know, I mean, he's not alone in the sagas of uh, producing massive amounts of children mm-hmm. out there. Um, but that's 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 really great. I, I agree with uh, with all of those. I would add um, uh, Nyal, I think, is a, a, an excellent father. And that that image of him uh, mm. snuggling up on the bed, pulling the blanket over their heads. Uh, it's not the, the you know, the, the best fatherly image, but that's uh, not that's not anything to do with his children. That's actually him getting his kids killed. <laughs> well, no, he's he's accepting fate and, and ushering uh-huh. them into the next world together. But I mean, I think he's a great father. He gives good direction to his his elder sons. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like his approach to fatherhood. Um, I also like that he's not a man of violence. Um, I also want to throw in uh, Ingmund the Old Thorstinson from from uh, Vatnsdala sure. Saga. Yep, I think yep. Uh, he's one of the more remarkable fathers that we've encountered, and his sons are wholly broken by his death. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah, a, a list no, of that's good a, saga and, fathers. You know, Ingemund, a uh, great guy. My Thingman, by the way. Um, and a man so that. well regarded that two other Icelanders actually commit suicide when they learn of his death. Exactly. Yeah. Clearly clearly a man who is sort of a father to the community. Right. 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 Oh, it is funny, you know, when I was thinking about this, uh, introducing this idea of saga fathers, um, the number of bad fathers really kind of sprung to mind <laughs> a lot faster <laughs> than well, good fathers. Well, yeah. In that culture a different of conversation. Yeah, that's not a Father's Day conversation, I think. Right, right. All right. Well, that's enough pre-show banter. Are you ready? Oh, all right. Uh, yeah, I, I know I'm I'm pretty sated with the pre-show banter. All right. Well, hopefully you've uh, saved some room for uh, some discussion of Lux Dialer Saga. No, oh, I'm absolutely stuffed, bugger off. Oh, sir, we are only going to discuss a warfare theme section of the saga today. No, oh, all right. There's a few chapters though. Bon appetit. Last time on Saga Thing! Following the demise of the Doyen of Iceland, Alv the Deep-Minded, her great-grandson, Hoskuld Dalakolsen, takes center stage. Hoskuld styles himself the big noise in the western settlements, and soon claims the mantle of chieftain. But his rise to power comes at a price, as he ignores his mother's second marriage and his half-brother, Hut. Instead, he focuses his... I'll slow it down just a little. Instead... <laughs> <laughs> Instead, he focuses his attention on home improvements, traveling to Norway to shop for lumber. Intent on sprucing up the old homestead, Hosko delays his visit to King Haukon and continues to snub baby brother Hrut. 
but he does find time in his busy schedule to buy a mute slave woman from a shifty slave trader. Hoskold brings his new purchase home to Iceland, where he learns to his surprise that Joran, his wife, doesn't share his enthusiasm for beautiful young servants, especially ones that soon give birth to Hoskold's illegitimate son, Olaf Peacock. The mitten hits the fan when Hoskold and his wife learn that their new servant is in fact Melkorka, an Irish princess in captivity who's been playing mute for years. After Melkorka and Joran come to blows over their rivalry, Hoskold moves the Irish woman and their son to another farm. An uneasy peace settles over the area, but with Hoskold's neighbors lining up to challenge his authority and his half-brother on his way to Iceland, how long can the, can the peace be kept? <laughs> Heads will roll as we continue this story of Laxdala Saga, chapters 14 to 19. Well, so, um, yeah. all that was centered on Hoskold, Joran, and Melkorka. It's a... An obtuse love triangle that doesn't quite add up. Well, John, love triangle implies that the love flowed in multiple directions, and I'm really not sure that's the case here. Okay. Um, so would you prefer if I said that it's just a love angle powered by Hoskold's lust bipod? <laughs> no. I don't really understand what you've just said. Well, and then I don't question my phrasing the first time. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but for all the time that we spent on Hoskold, Joron, and Melkorka, we're once again going to have to put aside the story and most of the characters from the previous episode. Because for the, f for the third time, this episode introduces a fresh group of characters and plugs them into the developing story. Um, John, can we even call this a story yet? Uh, report? Um we call it a record, Vignettes. a narrative, an apologue. A narrative narrative's probably more accurate. You can kind of do whatever you want okay. with a narrative, right? I mean, there is a coherence to what we're reading so far. Right? Yeah. It's the story of the descendants of Alf the Deep-Minded living in a particular region of Iceland. Mm -hmm. uh, Hoskuld is one of the great-grandchildren of Alf, and in this episode, we're going to get a couple of stories that revolve around other members of the extended clan. Yeah, and in fairness, Hoskold is still involved here as well, at least eventually. Uh, we promised last time that this episode would cover his relationship with his half-brother, Hrut Herjolsson, and, well... And it will. I mean, honestly, folks, this this will all start to come together into a coherent saga pretty soon. Yeah, I think by next episode, it'll start to feel like a saga. Well, I mean, don't, don't make promises you can't keep. <laughs> uh, are we ready to get this thing going? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's go meet the new folks. Part 7. Some guy we've never heard of kills another guy we've never heard of. That is perhaps the silliest and yet most accurate title that you've come <laughs> up with yet. I try. Uh, all right. This part of the saga opens with the addition of another new set of people. So we'll just introduce them as they become significant. Okay. Uh, you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah. Let's uh, start off with the uh, a few of the dramatis personae. Oh, a logical choice. Yeah. Well, the most powerful people involved are a local chieftain named Ingjald of Soitheyar and his brother Hall. Now, Ingjald is a wealthy man who likes to throw his weight around, and mm. his brother Hall is a big, strong man, but doesn't have much wealth to his name. Now, few men take Hall seriously, especially his brother. As the saga tells us, the brothers seldom agreed. Ingjald felt that Hall hardly conducted himself in the manner of worthy men. And Hall blamed Ingjold for failing to use his influence to help improve his position. Right. So, in short, uh, Hall resents his brother for not letting him ride his coattails. That's right. Yes. Uh-huh. 
So um, Hall is forced to make a living for himself, uh, and he works as a fisherman, and he often visits a popular fishing camp on the Bjarnear Islands. Uh, now, as you suggested, he's not well-liked, uh, since he tends to act superior to the others on account of his brother being a Gothi. Uh, one year, he's working alongside a skilled but poor fisherman named Thorolf of Breithefjord. Uh, the two of them agree to share the work and to share their catch, but when the time comes... Hall divides the catch unevenly and then tries to take the bigger half for himself. Well, I mean, you can see why he's so popular. Sure, sure. Uh, But he's underestimated Thorolf, who basically tells him to get stuffed. Mm -hmm. Uh, The two of them start shouting at each other, and finally Hall grabs a long pole and swings it at Thorolf's head. Uh, He misses, uh, and men then separate the two of them. So this is, you know, when we think about sort of the great battles of saga history, this is not on that list. No. Right? This is just so two guys shouting at each other over a pile of fish, and then one man swings a stick and misses. Uh, but it's which a very point, Icelandic saga, you know? Sure. Uh, and then both of them are sort of tackled by a bunch of other guys and told to walk it off and calm down. Yeah. Um, and then that evening, uh, when Thorolf's away, Hall sneaks back and takes the entire day's catch for himself. Now, this is noteworthy, listeners, because we have a conflict Mm-hmm. There's an actual conflict in this saga. Well, I, we almost have a conflict. I mean, this can only go full <laughs> conflict if Thorolf is willing to push back against Hall being an overbearing and greedy man. Well, good news. You see, Thorolf's too smart to jump on Hall right at the camp, so mm-hmm. instead he waits until Hall goes out fishing again. Yeah, and I assume this is with somebody else's ship, because uh, he was fishing with Thorolf's ship, right? I mean, it'd be a little awkward to stop by and ask for the keys to the Nor at this point keys uh i'm not sure about that though it it just says that they were in the same boat when they were fishing Mm -hmm. thorolf is supposed to be a poor man with barely any property to his name so i would guess the boat belongs to hall who is a little bit higher status but either way it doesn't matter both men continue to fish the island separately and far from one another for a time and hall doesn't think thorolf or anyone else will mess with him because you know right well because his brother's the gothi yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, Thorolf has not forgotten the insult, and he could care less who Hall's brother is. Good uh, for so him. he keeps, yeah, he keep track. So he keeps track of Hall's movements. And one evening, when the fishing has been particularly good, he waits by the shoreline in hiding as Hall rows his boat in. And as Hall wades in to secure the boat, Thorolf leaps out, weapon in hand, striking a blow that catches Hall on the neck. And even as Hall turns, his head flies off his neck into the water. Hey, and there we are. Yes. Not only do we have our first major conflict, but also, and I correct me if I'm wrong on this, I believe this is our first narratively witnessed killing in this saga. Our first narratively witnessed. Nice qualification there. Well, you know, I, I try to be nice and accurate. Uh-huh. And uh, this is the first narratively witnessed killing, and it's a doozy. Yes. Killing a chieftain's brother? Yeah. It's a yeah. bit of news all over the region. Um, mm-hmm. And Ingjald whatever his feelings for his bum of a brother may have been, will surely want to address this situation swiftly and directly. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we can say that he's devastated by his brother's death. I mean, again, you know, everyone sort of recognized that Hall was not uh, a worthy man. Yeah. But Ingjald's certainly aware of the potential damage to his honor if he fails to avenge his own brother's death. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. Which makes it all the more frustrating that Thorolf manages to give everyone the slip and somehow vanish from the island. Yeah, I mean, you can see how that would be irritating, because it's not its not a big island. I mean, John, the island may be small, but Breithefjord is, well, a broad fjord. Uh-huh. Yes, well done. 
Well, well the, translated, sir. Braid the fjord. Um, it's broad enough for Thorolf to disappear into. Uh-huh. And uh, so Thorolf makes his way to Laxerdal and then up the valley to the farm of Vigdis Ingil's daughter and her husband. He's a wealthy but unambitious man named Thord Godi. Uh, so the question, John, is why he walks most of the way up Laxerdal to bug Vigdis Ingil's daughter and Thord Godi. That's an appropriate question. Um, yeah. So, okay, a couple of things. First of all, Vigdis is not the daughter of the Ingjald who's trying to catch Thorolf. Right, no. Right, that's an important distinction to make. Different Ingjald. Uh, yeah, her father is Ingjald, the son of Olaf Felon, which also makes her a niece of Thord Bellower. Mm-hmm. And that makes her a great-great-granddaughter of Al the Deep-Minded. Yep. It's an impressive pedigree, and as we'll see, she is an impressive woman in general. And she's also our link back to the main clan that we're interested in in this saga. Yes, and the region that we're interested in. Right, yes, of course. But the the genealogy is more important here because Mm. the saga now informs us Thorolf is actually distantly related to Vigdis. Yeah, well, and that's why he hiked the 11 kilometers or about seven miles to Goldestadr, assuming that he landed near the mouth of the Laxo. You have been playing with maps again. Well, I have. You see, I'm going to be driving past all the farms in Laxerdal this coming August, so I've been very happily playing with maps. All right, well, so that explains the connection between Vigdis and Thorolf, but what about her husband, Thord? Thord Godi. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah. He's got no connection to Thorolf and uh, absolutely no interest in him. Sure. Uh, we should we should clarify. Uh, we should say that his name, Thord Godi, is just a name. Uh, yeah. We're not mispronouncing Godi here. Uh, Thord is no chieftain. Uh, no. In fact, just when everyone agrees that Thord's only real attraction is his money, which is yes. why Vigdis's family agreed to the marriage in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thord was very briefly mentioned earlier in the saga uh, when we learned about the neighborhood bully, Hrop of Hropstather. Uh, Thord was one of the farmers that uh, Hrop likes to pick on. Yeah, I mean, he, he's sort of an obvious target. He's rich but passive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but John, surely we are not going to just let the nickname Godi pass us by. It's not translated in the text, and I was hoping you might help us. No, out. yeah, no, it's not. Uh, and when I looked it up in Cleesby Vigfason, it just said a nickname for the definition. And I found <laughs> that um, not very helpful. No, it's not. So are you going to help us out here, Go- Godi? No, I'm not. Uh, hmm. We'll be saving that one for nicknames. Yeah, but by then, I'll, I'm going to forget who he is. Well, I can't be held responsible for that. I mean, that's what the judgments are for. Uh, we're going to uh-huh. stick to the story for now. Uh-huh. Okay, so Cousin Vigdis is perfectly willing to help Thorolf out. She uh-huh. says, You've done nothing to lower my opinion of you. Though it does <laughs> look like anyone who helps you will risk life and property. <laughs> I, I, I have no explanation. So did he interrupt her in the middle of sucking on helium balloons? Or what was the... <laughs> what's going on there? Uh, well, you know, last episode, I, I, I began to realize that every saga character that I voice sounds almost exactly like me. And I thought, yes, if I raised the register... We've all noticed that. A little bit, just a little bit more. You know, that uh-huh. didn't sound like me, did it? Sound like no, it didn't. It sounded like you on helium. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, she's... She is correct that there's a great risk to helping him at this point. I mean, she, you know, says it yeah. in a high falsetto. But still, her point is valid. Um, killing a yeah. chieftain's brother comes with consequences. Yeah, and this is the kind of situation that calls for bravery and cool-headedness. It does. Except, the, you know, the problem here is that Vigdis is married to Thord. And yep. as she says, my husband is, is no hero. 
<laughs> um, he's definitely not the guy to stand up to powerful and potentially violent men. This no, story. but it's fine. Vigdis has a plan of her own. Oh, and, uh, let me let me stop you. It's not a cunning plan. Well, that's disappointing. I know. She hides Thorolf in her shed and then tells her husband that her cousin Thorolf has come to stay with them for a while. Great. Uh, and when Thord objects, somewhat predictably, and says he can stay overnight and then be on his way in the morning, she just flat out overrules him. So, it's like this. I already told him he can stay, and I don't intend to go back on my word. I mean, could we say it's slightly cunning? I mean, <laughs> that's not cunning. That's just contempt. Contempt for her husband and his lack of hospitality. She True, hasn't even yeah. mentioned the whole killing a chieftain's brother thing yet. Right? You're right. Uh, Thor's, no, Thor's just objecting on the principle he doesn't like to have people stop by. Because uh, it she, costs money. Right. And when she does mention that he's killed a chieftain's brother, Thor is really upset. Mm-hmm. Oh, will certainly make us pay a high price for this accommodation since uh, we allow the door to shut behind your cousin. <laughs> Vigdis isn't having any of that. She mm-hmm. says, well, the good news is that Ingjold won't be making you pay for a night's accommodation because my cousin will be staying with us for the entire winter. <laughs> now, again, not so much cunning as just lip curling disgust for her husband. Yeah. Uh, although in Thor's defense, he's not wrong. I mean, harboring a man guilty of an ambush murder of Ingjold's brother is dangerous. Yeah, well, in the end, it's not so much him as his wife who's doing the harboring, but whatever. As far as Ingeld's yeah. concerned, it probably doesn't really matter that much. Right, and that's that's not the kind of distinction that the law makes either, right? Um, yeah. You know, it's the household that matters. Uh, and actually, there's a bit of a surprise here. Uh, first of all, it takes the better part of the winter for Ingeld to figure out where Thorolf's gone to. I mean, uh, Thorolf and Vigdis aren't like close relations and so it isn't an immediate assumption that she, he would, he would well, have gone to her farm. I also have to wonder, is Ingjold really searching that hard? I mean, again, honor demands that he make a search. But yeah, I mean, he's not super broken up about the loss of his brother. Because again, I mean, it is not, winter. You know? Right, right. There is that as well. He's he's There's certainly time in the spring to go track down this guy. If, yeah, in and, fact, he needs to be tracked down. And he lives he lives on an island in Breithefjord. I so mean, sure. How, um, how far is he really going to go? Well... He does eventually figure out what's happened. Uh, And Mm -hmm. when he does finally show up at Thord's farm, he comes slowly. Everybody knows he's coming. Uh, And so when he arrives, Thorolf is nowhere to be found. Of course. So there's a bit of a stalemate here. Mm -hmm. Ingjold knows that Thorolf's been staying at Thord's farm, and Thord knows that he knows. And, of course, Thord would love to give Thorolf up to save his own skin, but he can't say anything with Vigdis standing there watching him. Yes, and Ingjald doesn't want to, and Ingjald doesn't want trouble with a wealthy supporter if he can avoid it. So mm-hmm. instead, he pretends to be just, you know, just wandering through the neighborhood, you know, <laughs> stopping by, check in on a valued member of the community. How you doing? Yeah, yeah. How's um, your family? Yeah, I mean, he's selling this cheap, but nobody's buying it. Obviously. Mm-hmm. No, of course not. Uh, but that doesn't matter because Ingjald waits for a moment when he can get Thor alone, and he says, "So." How long has my brother's killer, Thorolf, been living here, hmm? I don't know what you mean. There, There's no truth to rumor, you know. Look, look, let's not mess about, Thord. I'll offer a deal. You hand the man over to me without causing me any trouble, and I have 
three marks of silver here, which could be yours. And we'll also say nothing more about you having harbored this killer in your home. Ah. Well, uh, three marks, did you say? Mm. Well, well... I, I insist on keeping your words a secret from other people, but you have yourself a deal. <laughs> He's so easily bought, this guy. <laughs> Three marks of silver. It's pretty good price. Sure. In some places, you can buy a, a mute Irish princess for that kind of money. Absolutely. Or one-tenth of a Jesus. <laughs> uh, so, Ingyald's putting some uh, serious jingle in Thord's jeans, but I mean, this is more than just a bribe. It is a bribe, though, John. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it is a bribe, but it's not just a bribe. Ingeld's showing the people skills that make for a successful chieftain. Mm-hmm. He's sized up the situation. He's realized that this guy isn't the one defying him, right? I mean, he's spotted the wife yeah. standing there with her arms folded the whole time. Uh, and uh, so he's giving... spot. Right. I mean, so he's giving Thord a way out that still gets Ingeld what he wants. Mm-hmm. None of this is morally admirable, but it's, it's effective. Yeah. The only problem is that Vigdis isn't stupid. She's watching her <laughs> husband, and as soon as she gets a chance, she says, So, what was it that you and Ingjald were chatting about when you went off all alone together? Well, we talked of a few things. We, we did agree that a search for the property was to be made for Thorolf, but, but if he isn't found, then we'll consider the matter closed between us. Now, now, before you say anything, let me assure you that I had Ascot, my servant, take Thorolf away from the farm last night. Oh, I have no use for lies or for Ingjald snooping about my household, but I suppose that's just who you are. Well, have it your way. Ouch. Hey, by the way, are you uh, regretting that voice yet? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's great. Right. <laughs> I, I could go all night. Uh, so so this is just a slap at her husband's willingness to submit to Ingjald's strength, right? She knows what's oh, yeah. going on here. Uh, right. she, she likes she, it. She, she knows... likes it very much when uh, Thord submits to her, but right. when he submits right. to someone slightly better, she's like, "I'm not into that." Well, the problem is that she knows he's just the sort of worm who would work out a deal to betray her yeah. cousin, but then wouldn't have the nerve to tell her that to her face. Well, I mean, she knows her husband, so right. <laughs> she's seen him grovel before. Right. Uh, so, uh, of course, Vigdis immediately questions the servant, Oscout, who says that he indeed followed Thor's orders. He took Thor off to hide in a sheep shed near where Ingjald's ship is waiting. Uh, and Vigdis recognizes immediately that this is a simple plot to allow Ingjald to grab her cousin on his way back to the ship. Right. See, everybody's got not-so-cunning plans going. No, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of intrigue around this farm. Yeah, and Vigdis tells Oscout, There's no doubt they planned this together yesterday evening. All right, go back to the shed and take Thorolf away from there as quickly as possible and bring him to Sodafel. Take him to my uncle, Thorolf Rednose. The... the reindeer? <laughs> Uh, no, the alcoholic, or or maybe just the chili. It, it doesn't matter why he has a red nose, just take him there. Okay. Now do this and I'll regret... <laughs> do this and I'll reward you greatly. Now go! <laughs> and Oscout uh, runs back uh, out the door, uh, just mm-hmm. ahead of Ingel's party, who are wrapping up their pretend search of Thord's farm. So right. everything's so, kind of working yeah. out. Yeah, now, now it's basically a foot race. A cunning foot race. I guess. Uh, Maybe. Vigdis is openly working against her husband, who she thinks is behaving shamefully. Yeah. And clearly, Ascalp the servant agrees with her since he's now racing to undo the job he did for Thord. 
I think most people would agree that Thord's being pretty spineless here. Oh, but absolutely. No, but th- that's my point. Vignus is obviously doing this to protect a kinsman, but she's also responding to the demands of honor. Mm-hmm. Well, in her opinion, her husband is showing himself to be dishonorable. But Thor seems to see this as a situation that he didn't ask for, and I tend mm-hmm. to agree with that. And he sees a situation that he can use to establish better relations with uh, a powerful man in mm-hmm. the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I, I don't think we're meant to agree with him necessarily, but I think he has plausible motivation throughout this scene. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this whole sub-narrative, I think it's it's about people who prioritize honor versus those who prioritize self-interest. And what makes it complicated is that honor and self-interest aren't always clearly differentiated. Yeah. Um, let's put a pin in that, though, because Ascout is already sprinting back to Thorolf's hiding spot. Part 8. The Better Part of Valor. So Ascout is one guy on foot trying to outrace Ingjald and his men on horseback. No problem, right? Actually, that is right. Uh, Ingyal doesn't know there's any reason to rush. Right? I mean, nobody's told him he's in a race with anybody. It's kind of like a tortoise and hare thing, except the hare doesn't know the tortoise exists. <laughs> uh, so, Ascout reaches the shed first, comfortably, and explains the situation to Thorolf. Uh, but by the time they get moving, uh, Ingyald and his men are riding into view, and now the chase is on. Yeah. Ascout didn't think this rescue through entirely. Well, he's a man of action. Uh, also, he didn't have a lot of time for planning. That well, I mean, he had to walk, you know, while right. he's walking, could be thinking. Well, sure. Um, anyway, the two of them turn and run toward the Lauxa River nearby, and it's late winter, remember? So there's mm-hmm. a lot of ice on and in the water. But spring's just around the corner, and the middle of the river is deep, frigid water. So what do you yeah. do? What right. do you do? Right, yeah. So um, none of the options are great. Uh, no. Thorolf and Ascout decide to try fording the ice-choked river rather That's than fighting crazy. a large group of armed horsemen. Right? Well, Which, it's, uh, probably it's kind of refreshing to see someone not choose the doomed last stand by the river option. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Uh, it's one of the things this saga is known for. Right? Uh, people behave in ways that make human sense. I mean, some will be self-destructive, some are clever, and some, like Thorolf, are just trying to figure out how to stay alive. Uh, yeah. Not a lot of people choosing to fight 15 to 1 odds in this saga. 15 to 2, Oscout's there with him. It's not a lot better, but okay. Uh, <laughs> He's there, in any though. case, they, they slide across the bank ice, wade through the chest-deep icy water, and pull themselves out on the other side, just as Ingjald and his crew reach the shore. Uh, Ingjald considers continuing the chase, but his men argue, probably rightly, that crossing with the horses would be too dangerous. Uh, And so, because he's got these horses with him, he's forced to watch helplessly as his brother's killer flees on foot into the distance. Yeah. That's pretty much it for this chase. Thorolf and Ascout make it to Thorolf Rednose's farm, and Rednose agrees to take Thorolf in as his follower. Which... Mm -hmm. Since Red Nose is a Gothi as well, um, that puts Thorolf under protection that Ingjold probably won't risk violating. So good, good job. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean Thorolf Red Nose is so important. There's an entire song about him. John, there is. You already snuck in your reindeer reference. It's a real song. I swear. I still don't believe you, but go ahead. Uh, I think it's. Uh, let me see. It's it's one of the Eddas. Um, <laughs> 
Thoralf the Red-Nosed Chieftain, famed in poetry and prose. And don't you ever cross him, he has a rep for killing foes. You feel better? Did you get it all out? No. No, I don't feel better. Is there any more? Any more in there? <laughs> no. Not off the top of my head, no. Uh, the point here is that it sets up the possibility of a future compensation deal being reached. Uh-huh. Uh, a, a friend and retainer of Red Nose might ask for and receive that kind of help. Um, that ask Red Nose to intervene with Ingyal for it. Yeah, but that's not a story the saga wants to follow. Uh, Thorolf, mm-hmm. both Thorolfs, have reached the end of their part in our story. Askout, meanwhile, refuses Red Nose's offer of refreshment and races back to Thor's farm to tell Vigdis what happened. He's loyal. Right, and, yeah, and, and meanwhile, back at the farm, Ingyald returns with his men, and he's not entirely pleased with the way things turned out. Yeah, he's looking to have words with Thor. Yeah, words, maybe a little chopping and hacking, you know, to see how it goes. <laughs> uh, but when he arrives, he finds a crowd of armed men waiting for him, mm-hmm. uh, about 20 guys. And they're all standing between him and the farmhouse. Which, of course, convinces Ingyald that Thorth set him up and never intended to honor their agreement. And he took right. the and three course, silver. Right. I mean, you can see why he'd see it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's unfair, mainly because Thor's a coward and a bootlicker, and he, he probably would never do something like that. <laughs> the defense rests, Your Honor. <laughs> well, I mean, it's true, but... Uh, by the way, it's Vigdis who's called all their neighbors to come and help them, mm-hmm. and it's out of respect mm-hmm. and friendship with her and her family, not with Thor, that they've come. No right. one's under any illusions about who's more worthy of support in this household. Right. Now, we said earlier that Ingyald is a savvy chieftain. He also knows that Thor isn't capable of all this, so he doesn't try to bluster and threaten. Right. Uh, Vigdis, as a woman, is kind of out of bounds for feud violence. But he does call Thor over to him. You you know that I consider you have treated me very badly here. I know it was you who helped that man escape me. Um, that's not how he talks. He had a deep voice like this. He was like, oh, you know that I consider you have treated me very badly here. I know it is you who helped that man escape me. Oh, well, excuse me. <laughs> Uh, and of course, uh, once this uh, conversation uh, is over, Thor pees a little. I think he does. It's gross, but he does. Yeah, yeah. It's not in the saga, uh, but we ex- we've extrapolated that. Yeah, yeah. No, he he denies the whole thing, which is which is fair, since he he really did think he'd betrayed Thorolf <laughs> successfully. <laughs> right? He thought he was working with Ingeld. Yeah. At this moment, he's probably very confused about what went wrong. Yeah, but uh, Vigdis now steps into the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think you both got what you deserved out of this. And Thord, you must return the money you were given since you came by it dishonorably. And then she goes into the house and she gets the purse full of money. Mm-hmm. Now, Ingjold sees the bag and looks a little bit more cheerful since it looks like he's at least going to get a refund. Oh, Ingjold hasn't read enough sagas. Oh, no, no. He's not familiar with this motif that we have seen mm-hmm. before. Uh, Vigdis swings the purse in a wide arc and smashes it into Ingjold's face hard enough that his nose bursts with blood. And she says, mm-hmm. you'll never see this money again, you scoundrel. And then she spits curse after curse upon him until he <laughs> flees the farm with his men. Yeah, it's the old purse on the honker attack. It's a classic. It is. Uh, and this one includes a detail that interested me, though. 
The saga author describes it as the nose bled so that drops of blood fell to the ground. Yeah. Is that um, so why is that significant? I feel like it's significant. Well, why don't you tell me why it's significant? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's got a legal ring to it. Right? Yeah. I mean, um, and the problem with that, I mean, I tried to follow up on it, but the problem is that the law codes, uh, you know, as you know, we don't really have records for what the law in the 10th or 11th century was. Right. right? We have a very limited window into what it looked like in the saga writing era. Yeah, we have the Graugas. These are the law yeah. codes that are from the late Middle Ages. Right. And and Graugas translates as Grey Goose, which makes about as much sense as you would think. Yeah, well, the problem is that the Graugas is a limited document. It's got some amazing stuff in it, but not always the things you're looking for. And no version of exactly. it is exactly really searchable in right. a great way, unless you have an electronic right. version, which we don't. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. I did spend some time looking through it for references to drops of blood being spilled on the ground. Uh, and what I found was the rules regarding injury, mm-hmm. uh, specifically the injuries resulting from a non-lethal blow. Okay. Uh, there are three levels of blows. The lightest one is one that leaves no mark. The heaviest is when bones are broken. The middle one is the one that seems relevant here. Uh, so... The this there are different kinds of blows that fall into this middle category, but one of them is described as when a man strikes another and leaves a blue or red mark, or the injury swells under the skin, or blood spurts from the mouth or nostrils, or from under the nails. Under the nails? What the hell's going on? <laughs> That's I, I know. Well, I suppose if you you know strike somebody else where they're, where they're holding a weapon, right? Oh sure, yeah, yeah, uh, you, or yeah, you know, you stub your toe really bad, or mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's fair to say that Vigdis has struck a level two blow on Ingjald, the chieftain, right. the Gothi. Uh huh. Uh, but the law, and this is typical, the law specifies that this is when an injury is done by one man to another. Uh huh. Right. The frustration for Ingjald is that he had suffered an embarrassing wound, a publishable wound. But because he was struck by a woman, he's unable to really do anything about it, either legally mm. or honorably. That makes some sense in Iceland's hyper-masculine culture. Sure. Uh, but it means that in this situation, right, it creates a kind of catch-22. Yeah. He's put himself in a difficult situation, and he realizes that the best move here is just to get out of the farmhouse and put some distance between himself and Vigdis before she hits him again. <laughs> uh, he might be able to do something about this later by pursuing vengeance against Thord Gothi or uh, against uh, Vigdis's relatives. But in this moment, he really doesn't have any socially approved ways to respond. Sure, yeah. It's also a recurring story in the sagas. Uh, we've seen right. the Purse of Silver to the Schnoz before, uh, most memorably yeah. in uh, Gisli's saga, when Alv Vestain's daughter broke the nose of Eolf the Grey for trying to bribe her to betray her husband. So mm-hmm. we can see this as a literary motif, or else if we want to take the historical reading, we have an example of an accepted way for a woman to assault a man who has insulted her house with a money offering. Sure. And of course, both of those can be operating together as well. Absolutely. Uh, but regardless, Ingjold realizes he's in a bad situation PR-wise, so he gets the hell out of there as fast as he can, and he goes home to stew over mm-hmm. his failure, and uh, never approaches the subject again as far as we know. Um, well... But there's a reason for that that we'll get to soon, yeah. uh, right? Because he is going to plan his revenge against Thord Godi, who he still thinks played him for a sucker. Well, sure, but we're going to have to wait for that. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Vigdis makes two decisions. Uh, one is to give Ingjald's bribe. Remember, she didn't actually give the money back. She just hit him with it. Yeah. Uh, 
so she gives Ingeld's bribe to Asgout as a reward for escorting Thorolf to safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also gives him his freedom, and he uses the money to fund a trip to Norway and Denmark. Uh, Askout actually eventually settles in Denmark and spends the rest of his life there building a reputation for being a capable and helpful man. Uh, and he is now out of the saga as well. Good for him. Brought to Iceland yeah. as a slave uh, by Thord Godi, and now he's back in Scandinavia doing what he mm-hmm. he, uh, he does best, being cool. Yep. Um, but uh, you said there were two decisions. Hmm? Oh, oh, right, yeah. Yeah. The other one, I assume uh, the other one is the divorce? Hmm? Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's had it with being married to this guy. Well. Uh, and her family is behind her on this. Uh, Thorolf Rednose, when he was talking to Asgard, made a few pointed remarks about how poorly Vigdis had married. <laughs> Which is ridiculous because who set the marriage up? Not Vigdis. Well, I mean... You know. But to be fair, she does agree with him. And she yeah. was in such a rush to get away that she didn't take anything with her from the farm. But it isn't long before Thord gets word that Vigdis' family is planning to demand a fair chunk of his property as a divorce settlement. In fact, half mm-hmm. of his property is supposed to be seized and taken um, in this uh, mm-hmm. settlement. Um, and since she's uh, from the incredibly well-connected family tree of all the deep-minded descendants, she's got serious legal and political power behind her starting with Thord Bellower and Thorolf Rednose. Right, and we already know Thor isn't into testing himself against powerful men. No. Uh, so what he needs is a powerful man of his own, which uh, whiplashes us finally back into our main story, because the man he chooses to help him is Hoskold Dalakolson. Hoskold, the socially tone-deaf chieftain, at least in this saga. The very same, yes. Uh, and Hoskold's first response is to mock Thor for being an alarmist. Yes. Uh, but he does eventually agree to stand by Thor in exchange for a large cash payment and an offer to foster Hoskold's son, Olaf. Yes. Now, uh, to be fair, Thor uh, offers the large cash payment and suggests that he yes. foster Hoskold's son. Um, yes. Now, this this Olaf, he is the, uh, the son of Melkorka, the Irish princess turned slave. Yes, and therein lies the problem. Yeah. Uh, this is where we start to see just how high Melkorka's stock is with Hoskold, because she objects to the idea of a nobody like Thord Godi being the foster father to her only son. And instead of just dismissing her, Hoskold works to persuade her. He says, uh, You do not see all the advantages here. Thord is a wealthy man and an older man, and he has no heirs. Orloff will stand to inherit everything from him. And since he's nearby... You can still see Olaf whenever you wish. You know, those are those are strong points, actually. Hang, hang on. When when did Hoskell learn to make persuasive arguments? Well, he's been reading How to Win Friends and Influence Your Love Child's Enslaved Mother, probably. Ah, understandably not a bestseller. Well, it's a niche uh, audience, you know? Sure, of course. Uh, but okay, uh, Vignus's threat is now neutralized because no one wants to start a legal battle with Hoskold over this divorce. Well, and Hoskold sends a message to Thord Bellower arguing that Vigdis has no legal claim to that property, along mm-hmm. with a pretty hefty bribe to drop the case. I think the bribe helps a lot. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah, uh, Hoskold really is learning. Good for him. Uh, of course, this arrangement, of course, also helps Thord in that it provides him with cover from any revenge from Ingjald. Yeah. Right now that he's been accepted into the extended family of Hoskold. That's right. Uh, yeah, this this whole passage, I think, really shows another side to Hoskold. Uh, we've seen him as a thoughtless husband and a self-important social climber. 
Uh, well, and, and a terrible, he's a terrible brother. Don't forget. Yeah, uh, yeah. but uh, <laughs> true. Yeah, we'll see more of that in just a bit. Yeah, true, true. Uh, but here we're seeing the crafty side to Hoskold's chieftaincy. Uh, first, he laughs at Thor for the situation. You've been known to show fear against lesser opponents than these. And once he's completely demoralized the man, he <laughs> offers protection in exchange for making Olaf the heir to all of Thor's wealth. Yeah. Uh, Jesse Bayak talks about this as Hoskold's finest moment as a negotiator. He mm. says, Hoskold at one blow supports his adherent, secures a future for his son, and demonstrates his authority and legal prowess. Mm-hmm. And in the long run, this works out very nicely for Olaf. Well, yeah. It's less great for Thor, <laughs> although at least it offers him the protection, as we said, of being associated with Hoskold's name. Right? Yeah. He's got, at this point, multiple powerful people gunning for him. So yeah. it is important for him to get that protection. But it's it's still, it's, this is a clear example of how Gothar could use their positions to accrue wealth and power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anderson and Miller call this a forced protection agreement. Uh, which is accurate, but also makes it sound like a mobster protection racket. Which is also accurate. Yeah. Yeah, nice nice farm you got here. Be a shame if it suddenly burned to the ground with you inside, know what I mean? It's a little overt for a saga threat. Uh, well, you know, no, nobody's threatening, we're just talking here. We're just talking. What mafia? There's no mafia. <laughs> is there a way uh, to threaten someone with brooding silence in a mob movie? I think there is. I mean... I think The Godfather is about 15% brooding silences, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, genre-wise, I think sagas sit very close to the spot where westerns and mob movies meet. Mm. Well, like like Deadwood. Basically, you're talking about mm-hmm. Deadwood. Am I? I mean, yeah, kind of, yeah. I, I should really watch that show. Yeah, well, anyway. Uh, Thord Godi uh, turns out to be a pretty good foster father. He treats Olaf like his own son, and mm-hmm. as the years pass, Olaf grows into a big, strong young man. Thor spoils him with fine clothes and weapons, and people start to talk about what a handsome and rich-looking kid Olaf is. Mm-hmm. Hoskold is underwhelmed about that and starts calling his son Olaf the Peacock for strutting around the way he does. Uh-huh. And that's the story of how Olaf got his nickname. Yeah, that really does seem to be the main reason this whole subplot is brought in. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, well, I mean, there's another angle to this we can think about as well. Right? So we were speculating earlier about honor versus self-interest in this subplot. Mm-hmm. We, we can obviously see a concern for honor in Vigdis' decision to choose her cousin over her husband. Right? Her actions all proceed from this assumption that honor stems from upholding loyalties and vice versa. Not just her, though. I mean, Thorolf kills Hall because he was disrespected and feels compelled to retaliate. It's not as much about being cheated out of fish as being cheated out of a public face. Through the medium of fish. Well, the medium isn't relevant, but fish were there. I mean, the, the fish are relevant. I, mean, I agree that honor has a role here, but so do economics. Well, okay, I yeah. Mean, Thor, Thorolf is a poor man with no property. Uh, the saga's line describing him is, he had hardly a permanent home to his name. Only a stack of fish right. to go home to. I mean, so- well, so being cheated out of a good day's catch of fish would be a serious blow to this guy. Fine, yeah, but he still has honor to gain or lose, right? Doesn't every man in the saga have that? Of course, but also mackerel. Uh, no, the, the point is that, that <laughs> poor Harry. men, the point isn't, the. I don't want to mean to say that poor men don't have honor, right? Although we could have a real debate as to whether medieval Icelandic culture thought they did. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, but my point was just that the calculus of honor is different when a person is living hand to mouth. There you go, bringing class into it again. 
but that's what it's all about. See, uh, yeah, yeah. it's very nice. Uh, we already did it's our true that honor. It's <laughs> honor is being presented here as the great leveler, right? Uh, everyone, yeah. regardless of their social status, has a stake in the game. Mm-hmm. Everyone from Thorolf the Fisherman to Thorolf the Red-Nosed Chieftain is acting to defend and increase their public reputation. Yeah, Thorolf Red-Nosed acts to protect other Thorolf because he recognizes and respects his ties with Vigdis. And because helping a distant relative shows that you can, mm-hmm. that you're someone whose strength and protection means something, it, it, it matters. Right. And, and to bring it back to Vigdis, she's also acting on that impulse. Yeah. And she's the catalyst for everyone else to assert their worth and honor, uh, positively or negatively. Uh, William Penchak frames all this as revolving around her reputation, right? Uh, He says, the whole episode uses a woman to shame men who have forsaken their roles as upholders of justice, uh, upholders of the social order, through their cowardice, greed, favoritism, and arrogant aristocratic pretensions. Hmm. I'd like to unpack that a little bit, but... uh... (laughs) All right. So Thorolf is safe. Vigdis uh-huh. is divorced. Uh-huh. Thord's got a son now. And yep. we've capped off another subplot. Where are we going next, John? Well, remember that guy, Hrop, who was picking on Thord earlier? I do. Part nine. Shipping out. I'm shipping out. Yep. Do, 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 do. <laughs> you you successfully rumbled my reference. Well done. There you go. Couldn't help it. All right. So Hrop is uh is still out there causing trouble. He was the well, guy we mentioned a couple episodes ago. Yeah, he's actually been getting worse. Uh, he's getting older and he's getting crankier with age. Wow. Uh, now Thor is now protected by his role as foster father to Hoskold's son. Uh, That's right. good. So, yeah, now he's getting protection from a lot of different angles here. Uh, but everyone else in the region is finding Hrop impossible to live with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and fortunately for everyone except him, Hrop gets sick and dies, so they no longer have to live with him. Well, problem solved. Uh, unless, of course, he were to come back as a revenant, throw off Twistwood style, but nah. I mean, what are the odds of that? That ain't happening. I mean, this is a saga, so like 60, 70 tops. Percent. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, this is Lack Style Saga, so yeah. probably not. Um, part of the reason is that Hrof's wife agrees to his final wish, which is to be buried standing up in front of the doorway of his farm. Yeah. So basically, if you want a revenant, that's how you get a revenant. Yep. Um, so her her name, uh, the wife's name is Vigdis, which I apologize. I know this is confusing. Uh, we'll call her Vigdis of Hropstather to keep things straight. This is a different Vigdis. Uh, mm-hmm. So she does, in fact, bury Hrop uh, as what amounts to a seed to grow a revenant. And yes. sure enough, the entire valley becomes haunted and people are run off in terror. Oh, boy. Uh, Hrop's son tries to take over running the farm, but he's driven mad by the hauntings and dies the following year. Mm, I see they've read Eirigisaga. Vigdis uh-huh. um, of Hrapstader takes over the farm at that point, but uh, she shows better sense than her son and refuses to live anywhere near the place. Because Good woman. Smart. Wh- why would you? Um, she puts control of the property into the hands of her brother, Thorstein Surt, and goes to live on his farm. Right. And, and meanwhile, the hauntings have become so terrible that people eventually run the risk of digging Hrop up and reburying him far away from the property. That sort of works, but and the neighborhood calms down somewhat, but the hauntings still continue periodically for a while. 
Yeah. And this this story serves a couple of purposes. Yeah. I mean, for starters, it indirectly turns our focus once again. This this time we're following Vigdis of Hropstather to a tragedy that's going to lead us eventually back to our main plot. And we honestly, we do promise this saga does have a main plot. You got, you got to keep the faith, people. Yeah. It has one. We're getting there. Um, it, it's also our first real introduction to the more supernatural elements of this saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, the register so far has been fairly realistic and semi-historical. Mm-hmm. The only real nod to storytelling convention has been the Irish princess motif and some of the other kind of mo- motifs like the, right. the, the, the coin purse slapping and that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, but now we're suddenly thrust into the world of spiteful revenants and haunted landscapes. Yeah, I mean, it's familiar territory for the sagas, but yeah, it kind of comes out of nowhere in this one. Yeah. And what's being introduced is a kind of curse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorstein Sert takes in Vigdis, uh, but shortly after that, he decides uh, that he needs to move. More ghosts? More ghosts. No, uh, actually, it's it's more of a collision with another saga story. Uh-huh. You see, Thorstein has been watching the rise of another family in the region. Two brothers named Thorgrim and Bork, the sons of Thorstein Codbiter. They've been slowly extending their dominance in the region, and well... Thorgrim now has the status of Gothi. Right. These, if, too much. Yeah. If these names sound familiar, it's because these are the brothers who both marry Thordis Sur's daughter in Gisla Saga and Erbija Saga. Uh, yeah. Thorgrim the Gothi is the father of Snorri Gothi, who you may remember as the thingman of mine that Andy's still jealous about eight years later. No, no. I don't want him. He's too sneaky. Yeah. Uh-huh. Go back and listen Thanks. to the tape. He's not any, I don't have any interest in uh-huh. him. He's fat. <laughs> wow. <laughs> don't, don't fat shame my thingman. Oh, We're just as God made guy. us. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> he's fat like me. Um, anyway, Thorstein Sert decides that he's too old to deal with the territory struggle with these guys. So he packs up his farm and family and he sets sail to Hropstather to reestablish himself. Yeah, reestablishing yourself at the ghost farm. Would we call this a good idea? Well, I mean, doesn't that depend on how it works out? Uh, I suppose. <laughs> so how does it Thorstein, work out? <laughs> well, Thorstein packs a ferry boat and brings with him his daughter, Osk, his son-in-law, Thorarin, their daughter, Hilda, and a dozen other men. And all of them bring their belongings. That's, so there's a lot of belongings. Uh, yeah. The ship contains chests and other cargo, and it's so tightly packed that the 15 people on board are having trouble moving around on the ship. But hey, it's a short trip. What could go wrong, John? So much cargo. Well, yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, uh-huh. there's a small storm as they're sailing around the fjord and the ship runs aground on a rock. Mm-hmm. It's not badly damaged, but it is stuck and the storm's getting worse. So yeah. what do you do with all that cargo as the waves start lashing? Yeah, this is about when Thorsten might start to regret letting everybody bring their extra crates of geological souvenirs and their barbells and whatnot. Uh, the ship is sitting very heavily in the water, and even with poles, they can't budge it from the rock. Yeah. They have to wait for the tide to rise, and at the moment, it's ebbing, so it's going to be a long wait. Yeah, what they need is a hero. Right. And just then, <laughs> over the horizon, a man comes. Nope. None other than Thord Godi. Nope. Ready to claim his status as hero of Laxdala Saga. Nope. Oh, no. Um, in fact, several hours go by and uh, no one 
comes to help them. Nope. And the people on board pass the time watching seals that are swimming around the ship. Well, you know where this is headed. <laughs> One of them in particular catches their attention. This seal is bigger than the others with long flippers and remarkably human eyes. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be watching them intently. Now, Thorstein is unnerved by it. And he tells the men to kill it. But they keep missing. And this seal with the doughy human eyes just stays right out of range. It's a smart seal. It's a little too smart. Seals are very intelligent creatures, John. Especially no. when they have human eyes. No, no. I was implying that this thing is a human <laughs> spirit. Uh, either a fulgia uh, or else just a manifestation of the residual misanthropy of Hrop the Revenant. Oh, a possessed seal. Does it have a yeah. mustache? Yeah, uh, like uh, Thorolf Twistfoot's corrupted spirit driving a bull mad, right, in Erbage Saga. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Or, you know, maybe a full-on ghost seal, speaking of Erbage Saga. Uh, now, uh-huh. Andy, I know you're a ghost seal enthusiast. I uh, I, ce- I celebrate their entire that's collection. That's right. I mean, I'm a big fan of the manatee, but you love those haunted seals. <laughs> yes. uh, so, I do. what's your view here? So, I mean, it's just a seal popping up out of the water, staring at a stranded ship. What's, what could be wrong with that? Right. Just bobbing up and down and mocking them with its eyes. A you little know how much it. of the sea isn't rocks? Like, <laughs> all of it. How would you find a rock? <laughs> Did you try the oars? <laughs> I'd try the oars because you yeah, could float away. Yeah, you got to really want to get free. <laughs> So <laughs> it's a jerk seal heckling them from the sea. Mm, jerked seal. <laughs> Spicy and blubbery. Mm. Oh, so this behavior is pretty well in keeping. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty well in keeping with the saga attitudes towards seals. Yeah. See, the, They're the jerks. Character. <laughs> Goddamn seals circling my boats, winking at me with their damn human eyes. That one made a kissy face at me. <laughs> John, are you telling me I shouldn't fuck that seal? <laughs> I'm telling you, you shouldn't even suggest it as an option. Well, I mean, he's looking at me. Oh, dear God. What, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> nice boat. Good luck with it. <laughs> you see the way he's shaking his tail at me? Oh, what am no. I supposed to do? No, 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 no. Okay, all right. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, we've come a long way from the ghost seal and everybody you're talking about. I mean, have we? Have we? <laughs> well, I didn't say which direction. Well, it's know. fair. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, sorry. It's, so de- it's, it's just delightful for me to have another seal yep, popping up here. Oh, uh, boy. So... The uh, if we could be serious for a moment, we I just try. want to talk about. I just want to talk about the folkloric characterization uh, that sees seals as essentially human spirits living in animal bodies in the sea. Mm-hmm. That's what I was trying to talk about. Sure, <laughs> you get now, distracted, distracted by a very attractive seal. <laughs> well, I was trying to see where the where the story would go. Sure, yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it didn't really go that way, but <laughs> no matter. I'm sure in some stories it does. But in other stories... Or maybe in your fan fiction of the saga, sure. Maybe. Uh, (laughs) But those are in my private journals. Oh, well. And no one will ever see those. Hello. 
Uh, but it, it's worth noting that in some stories, they would come ashore mm-hmm. and they would shed their seal skins to be humans for a while. Mm-hmm. So, John, I have to ask you, have you seen uh, Song of the Sea? Made I by have, the same yeah, yeah. company that did uh, Book of, Book of yep. Kells? Yep. Be- beautiful. Very nice. Beautiful film. Yep. And it, uh, it it speaks to this this stuff we're talking about, the folklore of seals, mm-hmm. just a little bit. What's interesting, though, is their attitude towards land humans depends on the story. Right. Uh, but generally speaking, they're, they're very hesitant to get involved mm-hmm. with humans. Um, they, they find them a little bit dangerous. And I think this, this, this particular seal in this story of Lockstyler Saga is uh, one of the less benevolent types. He, right. He means harm. I mean, right. I think what we have here is a corruption of the world by a vengeful spirit, right? I mean, sure. Uh, seals are one of the animals recognized as being accessible to supernatural possession. Uh, mm. And Hrop's brother-in-law, Thorsten, is attempting to take possession of the land that Hrop was determined to protect even after his death. Or else it's just a regular seal come to gloat at the people stuck on a rock. Sure. I mean, if I'm a seal watching these dummies try to get their boat off the thing, you know, <laughs> hey, oh, uh, not for nothing, but maybe if you dump those fish overboard, uh, I can help you what? out a little bit. <laughs> How come the, the seal's voice changed all of a sudden? Well, because the, I, I've, I've learned that there is a strong mafia presence in the in, in Iceland <laughs> from what, what you were saying earlier. So I just figured that this is one of their enforcers. Oh, I see. <laughs> I kind of like your haunted seal voice. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Well, either way, they can't get rid of this seal. And as the tide starts to rise again, the storm rises with it. Mm-hmm. And just as the ship starts to lift clear of the rock, a gale force wind hits them broadside and the ship keels over into the sea. Ooh. Listen to you with the boat talk keeling over. Avast ye! Scoop out of the gunnels! Strike the mizzen! Strike your own mizzen. Kill the seal! Or fuck it. Either way! Give him what for! Uh, anyway, the, the ship sinks quickly, and since the people on board are typical Icelanders of this period, they they don't swim well. Yeah. But they're pretty competent drowners, so <laughs> almost all of them are killed. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, the seal is still hanging around taunting them. Hey. <laughs> Check out my undescended testicles and ability to swim to safety. <laughs> He's like, hey, just grab onto my testes. Oh, wait oh, a minute. No. Sorry. Sorry, I keep them inside. Oh, well, looks like you're going to drown. <laughs> um, can I just take a moment to say long live Helgi Seal's testicle? And the seal ball run? Absolutely. Uh, I don't think I told you this. When I was researching the whole seal's testicle nickname, I actually found an article titled Testicle Saga. No, you did not. I did. Look, I know we've been fairly lowbrow um, in the last five minutes or so, but <laughs> Testicle Saga? Yep. Uh, it turned out to have nothing to do with sagas, by the way. It was about why mammalian testes are usually descended. Oh. Uh, but it was a fun title. And for a moment there, I thought I'd really found something exciting. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, there's only one survivor on the ship, a farm worker named Guthmund. He survives Mm -hmm. by grabbing onto the seal and floating, no, uh, grabbing onto a piece of flotsam and floating to shore. And Mm -hmm. Guthmund's survival creates kind of a complicated legal situation. Oh, yeah. 
this is really interesting part yeah. of the saga. How how do how deeply do we want to go into this? I, I think not super deeply. We still have a lot to oh, cover in this episode. John, so interesting though. Okay. All right. Uh, but uh, the elevator pitch version is mm-hmm. that there's some uncertainty about who should now inherit the land around Hrapsaga. Mm-hmm. This is the most Icelandic saga moment of yep. Icelandic saga. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> right. So. Thorstein Surt has a surviving daughter, Gudrith, who wasn't on the ship. Mm-hmm. And her husband, Thorkel Scarf, is going to argue that she should inherit the land because he wants to inherit the land. Right. This is Thorkel Scarf, one of your thingmen. Oh, one of my favorites, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, although he is being a little sneakier than when he, than he was when I took him in Vatanzala Saga. Yeah. Um, the, the problem is that who inherits the land here depends on the order that people died on the ship. Since Icelandic saw is quite strict about lines of inheritance, so right, and that makes sense because this is a law system that accommodates feuds and clan relationships, right? You want to, yeah. you want to have rules that keep people from fighting over who gets grandma's silver, right? So you got to map it all out, right? Yeah. So Thorkel meets with Goodmund, supposedly to find out what he knows, but he actually makes a secret deal with Goodmund, and Goodmund describes under oath. The order of deaths as Thorstein Surt dying first, then Thorarin, the son-in-law, then Hilda, the little girl, and finally Osk, Guthrid's sister. You see? Right. You see what he's trying to do there? That's a lot of names. Uh, The important point is that the result of that specific order is that Guthrid, as Osk's sister, only inherits the property if it goes to Osk at some point. And for that to happen, everyone else has to die in a precise order. Correct. So, Goodmund, having this precise order in mind that Uh has been given to him by Thorkel Scarf, he now goes around telling everyone about this sequence of deaths. So, Gudrith and therefore Thorkel make claim on the property on the strength of Goodmund's eyewitness account. Right. It's a... Cunning plan, if ever there was one. Absolutely it is. Uh, I mean, we're getting a little more deeply into this than we, we said we were going to, but it's interesting. Now, the problem here is that the, the people had questioned Goodmund before Thorkel spoke with him. Yeah, and that is a back problem. then, he was telling a different story about what he saw and remembered. So <laughs> yes. there are a few people out there who are understandably suspicious about Goodman's shifty memory. He was in shock initially, uh, sure. and now he's had time to sure. think about it. I mean, he had to swim all the way to shore with a seal mocking him the entire way. Uh, so <laughs> Just a few more strokes. Keep just, going. You're, you're almost you're there. You're almost there. <laughs> uh, the, the relatives of Thorarin, the son-in-law, they are particularly interested in this. Because Goodman's earlier version of events had Thorarin outliving his wife and daughter. Uh, in which case, mm-hmm. the land would have passed from him to his siblings. Ooh. And so the word starts to go around that Thorkel's scarf may have encouraged some edits to Goodman's testimony. Yeah. And if Icelandic law relies on one thing, it's truthful testimony. Mm-hmm. That's why tampering with a witness is a big deal, both in medieval Icelandic law and modern law. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many times we've seen people putting thumbs on the scales of justice in the sagas, but... This looks extra shady, mm-hmm. and Thorkel Scarf realizes that he's got to quiet these naysayers. So he publicly offers to undergo an ordeal to prove that he is above board. Right, and this is a version of something we've seen before. Uh, Thorkel's yeah. ordeal is that he has to pass under a raised arch of turf. If the arch collapses, the defendant is guilty. 
which mm-hmm. of course is a problem because obviously Thorkel is guilty. Well, he's only guilty of caring too much. Well, uh, yeah, and of the witness tampering thing. And the author breaks yeah. in at this point to say, heathen men were no less con- conscious of their responsibility when they underwent ordeals than are the Christian men who perform them nowadays. That's right. Um, which is an interesting interjection. <laughs> it's another of those ways of equating the Christian present to the pagan past. But it also means that Thorkel is making a big mistake in suggesting an ordeal. Unless. Unless? Well, unless Thorkel has a, wait for it, a cunning plan. Which, of course, he does. Well, of course he does. I mean, uh, this is an entire saga submotif. People who find ways to circumvent a supposedly neutral or hostile authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, legal authority, yeah. So what's the plan? So <laughs> it's not a great plan. I actually read this to my, my kids like, can you believe this crap? Um, but it, it seems to work. Thorkel hires two men to stage a fight right near the spot who where the turf arch is going to be constructed. And just as Thorkel boldly walks under the arch looking innocent and saintly, one actor throws the other against the arch so that it collapses mm-hmm. through the force of that uh, that blow. Thorkel immediately appeals to the onlookers as to whether the arch fell because of him and his guilt or because of the disruption in the crowd. Right. And since there are quite a few of them who are his own supporters in the mm-hmm. crowd, uh, they respond that indeed the arch would have stood up if these two ruffians hadn't knocked it over. Wow. I mean... Wow. Um, I mean, it's modern America style justice. Isn't I mean, it? it also, frankly, it's also uh, very much kind of medieval romance uh, kind of yeah. kind of storytelling. Right. This this idea of like circumventing an oath or a testimony through this kind yeah. of trickery. Right. We've seen this. We saw this at the end of Greta's saga uh, mm-hmm. with uh, Thorsten Dromund. Uh, but you also find it in like every other medieval romance, continental romance. Right. Well, for example, in uh, Beirut's Tristan, the, the yep. romance of Tristan, we see Isolt going through her own ordeal. And uh, she swears that uh, no one has been between her legs except for the man who carried her across the muddy yes. uh, passageway and uh, King Mark. But, of course, we mm-hmm. know that the man who carried her across the muddy passageway is Tristan right. in disguise as a muddy disgusting right. beggar um and she's telling the truth technically but also obfuscating mm-hmm. what between her legs really means right uh now but this is not lying to protect your love this is just lying to win property uh, unjustly it's got to rank with the most cynical manipulations of the law we've seen well i mean it's it's very classic uh icelandic saga law manipulation by uh unscrupulous men no, no, it's not. Just, this is not just typical. I mean, Snorri Gothi himself would be proud to pull off a stunt this unethical. E, well, it, it may not be totally above board, but it works. And in the sagas that expose corrupt <laughs> men like this, that's all that matters. Sure. <laughs> so Thorkel takes possession of the property at Hrafstadr. And even though most people are pretty sure something shady just happened, they really can't prove anything. Right. So crime pays. Corruption brings consequence-free rewards. Oh, well. Nope. Lesson learned. I'm writing that down. <laughs> Great. Well, moving on. Part 10. A Brother's Love. Aww. 
Yeah. So at this point, the saga moves us back to the Haskell Dalakolson storyline. How many plots do we have running at this point? I three or maybe zero. It depends on how generously you want to define the word plot. I mean, this thing is such a saga, isn't it? But uh, let's <laughs> let's try to stick to one. Well, actually, one's fine because we're going to be with Hoskold's family for quite a while now. All right, Hoskold's family, not Hoskold. That's a little ominous. Don't know. Well, maybe. I mean, we're all of us mortal, Andy. Well, speak for yourself. I plan to live. I was. Uh, Good luck with that. Uh, As for Hoskold, he's been going from strength to strength so far. He's building his reputation and his wealth. He's got his son Olaf fostered and heir to a wealthy man. Uh, His wife and mistress live on different farms, so they aren't actively fighting at the moment. Uh, But there is a dark (laughs) cloud on the horizon. A dark brother-shaped cloud coming in from Norway. Yeah. In the last episode, we talked about Hoskold's younger half-brother, Hrut Herjofsson. And as far as we know, the brothers have never met. And when their mother died, Hoskold kept the inheritance that was supposed to have been split between them. He then traveled to Norway and forgot to bring anything and never really bothered to meet his brother. Yeah, never actually looked him up. Uh, Now, we have a precedent already in this saga of a person being killed after refusing to divide jointly held wealth, right? Oh, do we? Yeah, sort of. Remember Thorolf? He killed Hall over their fish catch. Well, I mean, <laughs> I guess that counts in miniature, which is something the sagas do like to do, is set, yes. set one story up with a miniature version of it. But, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, this is worth a little more than a heap of fish, right? Sure. Uh, and Hrut's an adult now. Uh, time's been a passing on this saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he sails to Iceland to claim his half of the family heap of fish. Yeah. Uh, and he's not just some angsty teen either. He's been accepted as a follower of King Harold Greycloak. And he becomes a great friend of the king's mother, Gunild, the mother of kings. Oh, I remember her. Uh, mm-hmm. He's so well-liked, they both give him parting gifts. Harold gives him a ship, and Gunild gives him a golden ring. Now, John, mm-hmm. I seem to remember in Njal's saga, we saw this Gunild and Hut relationship, and it was a bit uh, R-rated. Yeah. Great friends with benefits, you might say. You might. Until it all went bad when Hut left her to go marry his fiance in Iceland. Yeah. You might remember this as the time that Hrut suffered a kind of a penis swelling curse that only struck whenever he tried to consummate his marriage with Unmord's daughter. You, you didn't have to emphasize the word penis the way you did, Andy. Did it make you, you feel could uncomfortable? Have just, you could have emphasized the word curse. <laughs> Which is the noun in that sentence. <laughs> yeah, but you know, when uh, yeah, I think no, this of the, Hrut, I think of a swollen cock. Yeah, no. I know you do. Uh, of course, that's, that's what you think of when you think of seals, too. So, uh, no, that the, is not what I think of the, when I think of seals. I think of sweet, <laughs> innocent eyes <laughs> popping up uh-huh. out of the floor, looking at me like, uh-huh. hey. Undescended testicles, you know. Well, I hadn't thought of that uh, before, but you know, you brought that to my attention. Sure, and now sure, here we yeah. are. Uh, now, yeah, this is the, the magical Viagra curse is what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, it tends to stick in the mind. Among other places. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, yeah. Um, in this saga, things are more family friendly, at least for the moment. Well, she escorts him to a ship. It's nice to move into I the... I mean, the look, <laughs> that's you're the one who decided where that went. 
the saga itself, however, remains PG. Uh, Goodild escorts Hrut to his ship, but just wishes him well, gives him the arm ring, and then turns away, overcome with emotion. See, that's weird. No genital altering curses or anything? Nope, nope, just the arm ring. Nah, that's lame. Uh, Gunild actually comes across as a much more relatable and sympathetic figure in the story. Well, which I think is obviously in keeping with the saga's overall themes of, you know, sort of taking an interest in the stories of women. Yeah, I mean, the, but also the Gunild section is like really, really cut down. She doesn't really do anything. Yeah, no, she, she, this is literally she's just here for a moment. Yeah, and, and she's also way too early in the story if we're going by the Njol saga timeline. Hrut hasn't ever been to Iceland yet, and he's definitely not engaged to any woman there. So he's got no promises to keep or miles to go before he sleeps. Right. Uh, Now, we'll have to address the timeline discrepancies between this saga and others, but but not now. Uh, Hrut's already sailing the open waters to Iceland, uh, and he's got good seas, so it's not long before he makes land. And he's obviously very eager to finally meet his brother, so he spends several months building a new farmstead at (laughs) Kamsnes. Okay, I mean, don't make it sound like this is just wasting time. Building the farm establishes a couple of things that Hrut needs to do before confronting Hoskold. Well, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, for one thing, he he wants to make it clear that he's not going anywhere. He's establishing Mm -hmm. a residence in Iceland, so Hoskold can't really pretend that he doesn't exist anymore because here he is. Right, which also means he's laying the groundwork for legal recourse if he needs it, doesn't it? Yes. If he's a landowner in Iceland, he can demand his rights in Iceland as opposed to the lesser rights of a mere Norwegian visitor. Mm -hmm. And he's also biding his time, giving his brother Mm -hmm. the chance to come see him and present him with half of the inheritance. It's very generous. Right, true. Although there's been no suggestion that Hoskold is interested in any kind of fraternal bond with little brother. Absolutely not. But uh, giving Hoskold a season to consider his options really puts the ball in his court. It's a generous Mm -hmm. move on Hrut's part. And I think Hrut's pretty smart about public perception here. He's gaining honor by showing himself to be patient with his brother and giving Hoskold a chance to prove his honor as well. Well, um, Hrut might as well expect Hoskold's honor in one hand and crap in the other (laughs) and see which fills up first because... There is no word from his brother. No. Uh, so once the farm is complete, Hrut rides to Hoskold's farm and demands his half of their mother's legacy, which goes about as well as you'd expect. The brothers argue for a bit, uh, but Hoskold refuses outright to acknowledge any obligation to Hrut, and they eventually separate with Hrut even more frustrated with the situation. Yeah, which is understandable. It's totally understandable. Yeah. Uh, but as you suggested, Hrut is a patient man. Uh, so he spends three years trying to get Hoskold wow. to open the purse strings. It's a lot of time. It's a long, t- yeah, it's a long time. Uh, Hoskold is not budging though. He uses a variety of mostly nonsense defenses, including claiming that Hrut is essentially illegitimate because their mother didn't get Hoskold's permission before marrying Hrut's father. I mean, that I I can't even pretend to be surprised. This <laughs> is just so on brand for Hoskold and his tone deaf way of life. There's a legitimate legal argument here because Thorgerth was technically in his household before moving to Norway, but it's just an obvious ploy on Hoskold's mm-hmm. part, and it makes him look like an ass, which, honestly, he doesn't need any help with. he That's who he is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, yeah, and eventually I think Hrut catches on that that's the case. He decides a more direct approach is needed. Yeah. So on the fourth autumn after he arrives... 
Prut decides to raid Hoskold's farm wow. while Big Brother is away visiting Olaf That's at a big Thor deal. Gotti's place. That's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, so he takes 11 men with him, uh, and he arrives early one morning at the field where Hoskold's 40 cattle are kept. Prut takes 20 of them, and before he leaves, he sends a messenger to Hoskold to tell him where the cattle can be found. Right? So it's... In his, at least in his mind, it's not a theft, right? He's, yeah. he's just taking his half of the yeah, herd. of course. Uh, and then he and his men ride off with their new cows. That was a lot all at once, but yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot happening in this episode. Mm-hmm. I keep it moving. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice change of pace, uh, but this is a masterclass on playing to public judgment. Hrut gives Hoskold a chance to fork over the inheritance and establishes himself as an Icelander while he waits. He lets years pass, showing patience and proper respect for his family ties to Hoskold, which people are probably noticing. And, uh-huh. in fact, by the time that he finally raids Hoskold's farm, I think public opinion is very much on his side. Everyone knows the story, and everyone is pro-Hrut. Right, as opposed to Hoskold, who's been making himself look petty and miserly for years. Yeah. And and he's away visiting his own illegitimate son at this point, up the... Uh, up mm. the valley there, which is an irony that might not land for contemporary audiences, but definitely stands out for the modern reader. Yeah. Um, now, we're not done with this yet. Uh, Hoskold's out of town, but his men aren't. And when they find out what happened, they call for support from some neighbors. Uh, within a few minutes, a band of 15 men are on horses and chasing Hrut's crew of cattle rustlers, mm-hmm. but it takes a long time to catch up with them. When they finally do catch up, Hrut orders his men to dismount and prepare for battle. Roll for initiative, lads. Not accurate. Well. Well, kind of accurate. I mean. Uh, what he actually says is, I may have been a bit slow in getting my property from Hoskold, but I won't have it said that I ran from his lackeys. <laughs> and he clearly does win initiative, by the way, because Hrut's first move is to charge into the pursuers and kill two of them on his first round of attack. I, I mean. I don't know how I feel about this new description style. I see where it's coming from. Look, it's it's the first battle of the saga. We might as well dig in and enjoy it, I say. Oh, all right. Well, after Hrut's action surge, his men charge him. And in a few minutes of battle, two more of Hoskold's men are killed. Hrut is in the front and doing most of the fighting. Isn't this the section that you tweeted about at one point? Uh, you mean the line from the translation, Hrut was so aroused that few of his men could keep up with him. That's the one, yes. Yeah, well, you know, some people enjoy battle more than others, John. Hey, well, you. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Hoskold's men eventually break and run. Uh, most of the survivors have taken injuries, by the way. Uh, but on Hrut's side, only Hrut has been hurt mm-hmm. since he meat-shielded throughout the entire fight. And, of course, he's still got the cows. Yep. Uh, until he has all 20 of them butchered for meat, which he does as soon as he gets home. So there's not going to be any counter-theft going on here. And don't forget that he sent a messenger to Hoskold, which helps to establish kind of a, a gray area here illegally. I'm coming to get your cows. Right. I hope it's okay. Right. Uh, so the question is, did Hrut steal the cattle or did he claim his own property from a miserly brother? Well, we can guess Hoskold's opinion, obviously, uh, when yes. he learns that Hrut <laughs> has taken half of his cattle and killed four of Hoskold's men. He puts out the word for his supporters to gather for an attack on Hrut's farm. And Joran, Hoskold's wife, watches as he rages and plots for a while, and then she calls him aside. Uh, what exactly are you planning to do here? I do not intend to be robbed of 
cattle and men by foot. I haven't settled on a plan yet, but I hope to give people something to talk about besides the death of my farmhands. Well, your plan is pretty awful if it includes killing a man like your brother. Most people around here have the opinion that he should have done this sooner. Hrut is not to be easily dismissed as a bastard, and he wouldn't have done this if he didn't think that powerful men would back his move. Mm. I've even heard that he's exchanged messages with Thor Bellower, which I find quite ominous. You'd be wiser to do right by your brother, and I'm sure he's eager to make a settlement and behave as a brother to you. Mm. Look at all Yorin. I mean, uh-huh. she's making a very good case as a conciliere, she is. isn't she? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, if we're going to go back to the mob idea, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is she's she's giving wise advice, disinterested advice, right? This isn't about yeah. what she wants. This is about what she thinks is best. Uh, she's she's pretty fantastic. I mean, if uh-huh. she keeps going this way, I mean, she's in uh, Thingman's status category there. It's a long saga, Andy. It's a long <laughs> saga. We got a lot of people to meet still. Some tells me she won't be around that much longer, but. I'm liking what she's putting down. Uh-huh. Um, th- this is Thord Bellower's way of getting revenge for the divorce between his cousin Vigdis and Thord Godi. Hoskold yeah. got in the way by taking Thord into his protection as the foster father to Olaf, and now Bellower sees a chance to embarrass Hoskold publicly. Right, right, yeah, by getting by taking his brother's side against him, maybe even finding an excuse to kill him. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but also uh, Joran has heard this rumor. Right. The Icelandic grapevine is alive and well in Lakstala Saga. If this isn't the first or last time, it'll play a part in the story. Joran has her own channels of communication that circumvent her husband. And in this case, and I think probably in most cases, she's got a stronger read on public opinion. Yeah, I would think that's going to be true most of the time. Yeah. I mean, Hoskold's yeah. defining characteristic so far is his tin ear for other people's feelings and public opinion. Yeah, probably, yeah. Uh, and once he calms down, Hoskold sees it that way, too. I mean, he, you know, he's not completely devoid of self-knowledge. Yeah. He's not happy about it, since the situation calls for diplomacy rather than stomping on the feelings of others in hobnailed boots. Mm-hmm. But he goes along with it. Showing rare good sense. Good for him. Mm-hmm. And now, finally, a couple of decades late, Hoskold and Hrut uh, manage to reconcile, and they develop a sibling relationship and get along from this point forward. Although, I mean, it's not really clear to me why Hrut is still interested in being on friendly terms with Hoskold. Mm. Hoskold's been treating him badly for years. Unless maybe this is a way of building his reputation in Iceland. I I, I don't know. I, I'm, as an aristocratic man with important friends and family, I guess. No, exactly. Yeah. I, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. That's where we're going to leave our story for this time. Uh, Hoskold and Hrut finally bury the hatchet and are growing as men of consequence in their district. Uh, but right now, both men are content to raise their families and remain quietly on their farms. Which is why our next episode will leave Hoskold behind in favor of his son Olaf, who's grown into manhood while the hoskold Hrut argument has been going on. Right. I mean, it's another narrative leap, but really, this, this really will be the last one for a while. Well, there you go again, making promises. Oh, I live on the edge. Well, all right. Uh, uh, so, uh, Johnny, before we wrap this up, uh, it's... yeah. You, you've established this new thing we're doing um, where we're going to summon people from the episode to the thing uh, and mm-hmm. talk about them. Are you ready to make this call? Well, I think you're running this one, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, who are we calling to the stand? I would like to summon none other than Thord Godi. Thor- 
Wait, what? Well, why? Thord Godi, husband of Vigdis, foster father of Olaf Peacock, sometime betrayer of Thorolf. I summons you. <laughs> I think you can just summon him. <laughs> you just summons him. I summons him. Uh, I, I, heard, I heard who you said. My question is, why are you doing it? Well, my question to you would be, why not? Uh, because he's a nobody? And we've got people like Hoskold and Hrut to talk about? I mean, sure we do, but they'll be around for another episode. This is Thor sure. Godi's moment in the sun. Uh, he He's about to dip right out of the saga, John, and right out of the mortal plane, so... Okay, uh, I'll bite, but uh, let me ask one more question. All right, go ahead. What que- What do we got? Why? You asked that one before. Uh, because I think that the games he plays in this episode, the choices he makes, are interesting and worth fleshing out a bit. We've talked about him a little bit, but I, I want to explore what his perspective okay. is. Go for it. Well, to be fair, I'm less interested in him as a character, <laughs> which undercuts what I'm trying to do here a little bit, but... <laughs> Uh, I'm really interested in what some of his choices suggest about the lives of lower status individuals in medieval Iceland. Okay. I like where you're heading with this. Well, thank you. Um, So let's start by reviewing what we know about him from the saga and other sources. Shall we? Wait. Is he in other sources? No, not at all. Yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> that was easy. Yeah, uh, very easy. Uh, but you're going to spring something on me here. But uh, he is in this saga, perhaps as an invention to explain away the name of Goldastaller, uh, his mm-hmm. farm in Laxerdal. But perhaps he's also a real person who did indeed own the property and foster Olaf Peacock. That's a, a question that I have, but maybe. So that's an important point there. So in all the stories of Olaf Peacock throughout saga literature, and yep. There are a lot of them. He's in a lot of sagas. Does Thord Godi ever come up elsewhere as his foster father? Not that I saw in my quick, admittedly quick survey. But I wasn't uh, really looking that deeply because his presence or lack thereof in other sources, not that important to what I want to talk about for this saga. You didn't look for him at all, did you? No. <laughs> I see why you'd say that. But I did. I looked all <laughs> over the place. But I did not reread all of the sagas. Or look through their name indices to uh, find him, to be honest with you. But my quick survey mm-hmm. suggests that he only shows up in Laxdala Saga. Okay. I'm convinced. Carry on. You're easily swayed. All right. Well, well <laughs> good. I, I don't really want to pursue I it. I like that you are playing the gullible fool on this uh, journey. So, okay. Let's continue that. Well, playing, being, whichever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as we mentioned earlier in this episode, we met Thord Godi mm-hmm. uh, early in the text where he had a whole chapter devoted to establishing who he is. And the first thing we learn about him is the difficult position he's in with Hrapp. Uh, his unruly neighbor, and the protection that he gets from Hoskold, the most influential figure in the valley. Right. It's the same chapter where we also meet Vigdis, his soon-to-be ex-wife, and learn all about her powerful relatives. Which is exactly the point, right? Thorth Uh is a wealthy man, but he's kind of on his own as far as family goes. He's got no children. He's got no extended family to offer him protection or support in Iceland. Right, which explains the importance of his marriage to Vigdis. Yes. See, Thorth is an immigrant who settled in Iceland with his property and his slaves, including Oscout, and little else. This yeah. is important to keep in mind when we think about how he seems to cower before Ingild or even before his wife Vigdis. They have power over him and certainly can ruin him if he makes a move that they don't like. Okay, so, yeah, so he has the appearance of a coward to most people, but you're saying it's more calculated than that. Well, I, I mean, I want to argue that— I'm going to try to say that again because I stumbled over sure, that badly. why not? 
Um, so you're saying this gives him the appearance of a coward to most people, but that it's more calculated than that. Well, I, I mean, I, what I want to argue is that Thorth is a shrewd man, even if he is a coward. I mean, the, uh-huh. the sagas definitely do not like men who act like Thorth, but men like sure. Thorth certainly exist out there. And as Thorth shows, one doesn't need to be a brave man or a bully to succeed in Settlement Age Iceland. All you've got to do is hitch your wagon to the right horses at the right time. Right. And in Thorth's case, the first horse, the most important horse, is Vigdis. Right. She's from a well-connected family. Right. So let's uh, – we did it before, but I think for, for this purpose, it's been a while. Let's list out mm-hmm. the big names on her family tree, shall we? Right. Okay. So she's the granddaughter of Olaf Felan, mm-hmm. the great-granddaughter of Thorsten the Red, yes. the great-great-granddaughter of Alv the Deep Mind. Yeah. So it's an impressive bloodline if there ever was one. And not only that, her uncle is Thor Bellower. Uh, and we've mm-hmm. heard about how powerful he is in more than one saga on this podcast. Yes, uh, especially the one in which I chose him as a thingman. Yeah, why? Well, why not? Sure. Um, and and on her mother's side, she's got Thorolf the red-nosed Icelander, who is said to be a man of great courage and ample resources. Right. So she's from a large family of heavy hitters. And why does she marry Thorgody? I mean, because he's got a lot of money and huge yeah. tracts of land at Goldestadr. Uh-huh. Marrying Vigdis into that grants her family a large dowry and hopefully down the line, the property itself when Thor dies and Vigdis or their children inherit it. And I think it's important to think that uh-huh. part of the, the whole Thor story is really about Goldastavr rather than about Thor himself or his relationship to anyone. Right, right. That inheritance is important, but the problem is... Uh, Thor and Vigdis never have children. No, no, they don't. Oh, and uh, incidentally, uh, speaking of who lives where, Thor's other neighbor uh-huh. is Thorbjorn the Pockmarked, another wealthy guy who will play a role in our next episode. Okay. So far, we've got a guy who's positioning himself in the social hierarchy by using his money as a kind of entree, right? To, yeah. to enter into relationships with families who wield the power in the area. And who can protect him if necessary. Yeah. Uh, but it's important to note that he himself is not a power broker. That's pretty mm-hmm. obvious. His position is dependent upon the goodwill of those he's allied himself with. And since his wife wants to hide cousin Thorolf when Ingjold, a real live Gothi, comes looking for revenge, well, Thorth is understandably scared of the consequences. He's the kind mm-hmm. of guy who wants to play it safe by giving the powerful what they want to help secure his own position and protect the wealth that he's accrued. Right, and what is he supposed to do here? Right, He's caught between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. If he if he pushes back too hard against Vigdis, he might lose her and, by extension, her family's Which, support. You know, ultimately, that's exactly what happens, right? Right, but he also can't afford to play games and deceive Ingjald because if he's caught hiding Thorolf from a chieftain, he could lose all he has. Yeah, his property... For sure, and quite possibly his life if things play out the Uh way they normally do. Uh, Now, given the two available paths, it kind of makes sense that he would be confused and waver between the two, but maybe favor Ingjald more than the other. Right. Um, Right, because the the problem then becomes, is there a way out of this where he doesn't end up offending either party? Yeah, right. Right. But we would think that he could rely, sort of be confident that Vigdis' family would support him against Ingjald, if push comes to shove, they are 
important people. Well, that's true. But, you know, I have to wonder, based on the way it all plays out, should he? Because I think the relationship Mm. between him and Vigdis and the lack of children uh, in their marriage, you know, that doesn't look great, to be honest. Uh, I imagine Mm -hmm. he's probably been treated somewhat coldly and dismissed by her and her family for most of their marriage. And so... As far as he's concerned, he looks like a means to an end for them, and he knows that. Well, just as, you know, they are a means to an end for him. Right. Um, No, Thor is in a terrible situation no matter how you look at it. But he is, like I said, a shrewd fellow. He's been forced Mm -hmm. to house Thorol for the winter by his wife, which is a really bad look. But it at least appeases Vigdis and keeps him in her good graces despite any reservations that he might have. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and when the opportunity to sneak his way out of it all through that quote-unquote cunning plan with Ingjald, (laughs) well, he's willing to give up Thorolf, but only so long as it doesn't expose him to Vigdis, thus the the plan to hide Thorolf down by the shore. Right, although we should also point out that also he wants to be paid for his trouble. Well, I mean, you don't get to be as wealthy as Thord by sitting on your hands, John. But yes, I mean, Thord is clearly swayed by the offer of three marks of silver. He's a little petty. Right. Uh, And of course, uh, as we said, Thor's cunning plan doesn't really work out. Uh, Vigdis discovers the plot, ends up uh, undermining it, right, with Asgard's help, uh, saves Thorolf, divorces Thor because of this betrayal. And so all of this, the end result of all this is that Thor is in a terrible situation. It's terrible, but to Thor's credit, he's at least alive. Alive is good. It is. Uh, Of course... He does end up losing the three marks. Oh, he doesn't, though. He uh, doesn't. Well, he does because it goes to He does. Asgard, he absolutely yeah. does. Uh, yeah, it goes to Asgard. Okay. Uh, he loses his partnership with Ingjald before it even really has a chance to get started. And worst of all for him, he loses his marriage to Vigdis and his connection to her family. Yeah. Things certainly did fall apart for the Umfundizi. And uh, that brings us the to what? the climax of this summons. What did you say? <laughs> I said, are you confused by the Umfundizi or the climax? Yes. Umfundizi. Things fall apart. Chenwe Achibe. Oh my God. Jeez. Umfundizi. It's been so many years. Wow. Me too. I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't make that connection. It's been uh, since high school. (laughs) But well, for me, middle school, but uh, it it has, the uh, Umfundizi has has stuck with me for some reason. I don't know. There you go. I just like the way it sounds. Well, it's like the fact that I still refer to uh, cars as Hrudadu, uh, <laughs> which is a Watership Down reference that <laughs> there's yes. no reason for me to use. There's no remember. reason, but yeah. Uh, but uh, the important so, man um, is Umfundizi. You, yeah, so you're, you're, you're claiming this is the climax of our summons, which suggests that our summons have climaxes now. Yes. Uh, I thought the Melkorka summons kind of just aimlessly wandered until it sputtered out. Like most things in Saga thing, but uh, uh, that's the difference between a John summons and an Andy summons. Andy delivers the climax. That's not what I've heard. <laughs> but <laughs> well, well, we'll see. <laughs> there's there's things I would say, but I shan't. Dear God. Well, anyways, when Vigdis divorces him, her family, led by none other than the money grubbing and conniving Thord Bellower. Wow. <laughs> Tries to claim. Just just slandering my thing, man. It's not slander. I think it says that in the saga. That's what he is. But, you know. That's not true at all. It is true because when you took him. He's a, I, he's a wise peacemaker, mm, sir. I'm not sure about that. 
he is an opportunist, uh, how else is he in power? But that's neither here nor there, John. So you're just going to you're just going to uh, poop on the entire uh, class of people. No, no, just the ones that all are all the wealthy. No, no, are no. Equally, you, you've you've made a mistake here. I'm only poo pooing <laughs> the people in your hall. I see, <laughs> because in in my hall, those men of power are all upstanding citizens who want to do good and sure. make the world a better place. Uh huh. All of yeah, them. Sure. That's that's great. Every, I, I hear you. Go on. Yes, men, women, dogs, like Thorkel Scarf, for example. Well, this upstanding fellow uh, uh, in Vatnsdala saga, he is. I don't know what happened in this saga. That's not. I mean, that's neither here nor there. Anyway, go on. Go um, on. So, what was I trying to say? I was trying to say that you were trying to say that my thingman is. Uh, oh, a man of right. little moral fiber. That's correct. No, no, that, mm-hmm. and uh, I was trying to say money grubbing and conniving Thor Bellor. I think is the phrasing that I yes. use. Um, yes, tries to yeah. claim half of Thor's property, but Thor. He's not having any of that. And you know exactly what Bellower is trying to do here. Uh, yeah. I also know that Thor uh, Bellower is trying to help his kinsman uh, as she leaves a bad marriage. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yes, but okay. Like claiming a little uh, more than... But speaking of, speaking of money grubbers, okay. uh, Thor Godi rides over to Hoskold's farm and offers him money and a foster home for his son, Olaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, having lost that connection to Vigdis's family, he's groveling once again before the mighty in this attempt to save himself. Well, I mean, judge it how you want, but it's the best move available to him at this stage, right? Sure. We know yeah. that he's lost Vigdis's support, and there's no chance that Ingjald is going to somehow step in and help him anymore. So yeah. uh, you know, who's he got left? What is What is he going to oh, do? Right. Now, I'm not arguing that Hoskold isn't the best choice for him at this point. I'm just wondering... You know, at this point, what kind of leverage he has, right? I mean, the the fostering of Olaf is a fine gesture on the surface, mm-hmm. but you know, is it really? Uh, Thor Godi is kind of a nobody in the district. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, I understand. I, I'm glad you said that because this arrangement, I think, is the most interesting part of the summons of Thor. Right. So we, yeah, we talked about this briefly earlier, but uh, do you want to sort of go into some more detail here? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think so. Um, we need to understand Thor's position in the district to fully appreciate what he mm-hmm. manages to pull off here. And that's what we're slowly building, is getting a sense of who right. he is. And, you know, we can say that from one point of view, what he pulls off is pretty impressive. I think right? so. He, he allies himself to Hoskold through Olaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by doing that, he managed to save his neck and his property. Exactly. And Thor slides out from under Vigdis... And right into the sanctuary of Hoskel Delacolson's kin group. It's a good move. Right. In many ways, it's a better arrangement for him. Exactly. He he still gets to run his farm independently, and he gets to enjoy the protection of one of the most powerful men in the district. Indeed, absolutely. That's it. I mean, I do understand why Thor throws this Hail Mary, but I'm not as sure I understand Hoskel accepting so eagerly, right? Um, I mean we, we, again, we talked a little bit about this, but I'm kind of with Melkorka here. It's not a it's not a fantastic match. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 has an economic component, yes, but Thor is kind of a nobody. I mean, is he though? Yes. <laughs> okay, maybe Thor himself is a nobody. But before I address why this is a good fit for both parties, let's let's just explore how Fosterage works for a second. 
Okay. Quick question, though. Yes. Will this episode ever end? Well, if you uh, click your heels together really hard and wish, uh-huh. mm-hmm. maybe it'll happen. But for now, I'm going to talk about how fosterage typically worked in some yep. different ways. Uh, the first thing that I would think is worth addressing is the disparity in status between Hoskold and Thor. But that's not really surprising when you look at other examples in the sagas. Because while the fostering of children does sometimes happen between equals or by the lower status to the higher status, more often than not, the foster parents are of a lower status than the child's parents. Mm -hmm. This is typically done by the powerful for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's about reinforcing a settlement, similar to the kind of peace weavings we see in in Beowulf, for example. But Mm -hmm. that's not what's happening here. Other times it's done to secure patronage, to assure the higher status parent that the foster family will support them in future conflicts. But that's also not what's happening here because I don't think Thorth brings a whole lot to the table. Right. I mean, if anything, it's happening in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. right? It's definitely happening for Thorth. That's the whole reason that he's approaching Hoskell with bags of money and an offer to foster Olaf. Right, right. Now, I know you said that Thor is a nobody with very little to offer someone like Hoskold, but I think the saga suggests that that Olaf is an illegitimate child who doesn't stand to inherit much from his father. Not only that, he's got little claim to anything else because his mother is a slave or Uh, maybe a former slave by this point, but in Icelandic society, Olaf has very little ground to stand on as he grows older. He needs some Mm -hmm. kind of foundation. I mean, it's worth worth remembering that he is the grandson of a king of Ireland. Well, not in Iceland. Right now, well, I mean, next episode we're going to get into this, but right now it doesn't appear that he has any way of really accessing that privilege. That's right, that's right. Uh, So, yeah, I see what you're going for. This is coming together. Coming together like a climax. Keep going, we'll find out. All right. So the question is, what does Hoskold have to gain from this arrangement? And I I think as he suggests to Melkorka when he talks to her, there's a lot to be gained. Like Mm -hmm. he says, Thor is extremely wealthy. He owns a productive farm in a good location. So say what you want about him as a man. He's a decent enough prospect by virtue of his wealth and the land holdings that he has to catch the eye of Vigdis' family. So I don't sure. think it's surprising that Hoskold would be interested in tapping into that keg himself. Yeah. I mean, in our journey through the sagas, we've seen quite a few examples of this, right? Of, of powerful men taking advantage of lesser men in desperate situations. Mm-hmm. Frovenkel does it. Uh, Arnkel does it. Well, and uh, Snorri, Snorri Gothi is the best at it. That's his bread well, and yeah. butter. I mean, he's the best at anything he does. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, these men uh, offer their help to men who are desperate enough to give up something really valuable. Yeah. Uh, like in Arnkel's case, right? When uh, Ufar uh, was having trouble with Thorolf Twistfoot, right? Uh, Arnkel's father. Uh, Arnkel agreed to help Ufar against his father, but somehow managed to get himself named Ulfar's heir uh, should anything terrible happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So powerful men seem to, at least in many of the sagas, expand their land mm-hmm. holdings and power by taking advantage of the weak. And here in Laxdalai Saga, we see Hoskold doing exactly that. Thorth is a man with wealth and property. And by allowing Thorth, a man without a wife or any children, to foster Olaf, Hoskold assures that Thorth's property and wealth is going to fall to Olaf, an illegitimate son with no strong claim to anything that Hoskold might want to leave him. 
Right, but we shouldn't think about that as being too one-sided. As you said, Thor is also getting some value out of this transaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if nothing else, he's also, with Thor as his foster father, Olaf gets access to a good farm and great wealth and a bit of a pushover for a father. But uh, Thor gains... Olaf, right, a, a strong, able-bodied young man who has now reason to think fondly of him, uh, and also through him a conduit to a very powerful family. That's right. So everybody wins. Yep. Now now then, there there's plenty more to be said about fosterage in medieval Iceland, but I, you know, I feel comfortable leaving it here. We've reviewed the, the same story yeah. of Thord and his uh, agreement with Hoskold, but from the perspective of Thor. And I, I feel I mm-hmm. feel comfortable saying that Thor makes good moves, and now we know why. I think he makes the best moves he can under the circumstances. Yeah. Right? I mean, he's still, I would say, you know, if you sort of balance everything up, he's still on the losing end of these transactions. Always. But- He's making the best deals he can for himself. Right, but as a lower status individual, despite his right. great wealth, what moves does he have available to him but to kind of find the, the you know, he's a remora, right? He's looking for the, the biggest shark that he can attach himself to right. for the greatest advantage <laughs> to himself. Uh-huh. Uh, excellent. Uh, well, I think we'd plan to do a Runesack rune question about uh, Cormac Saga, mm-hmm. but it's... I gotta tell you, Andy, it's a uh, it's it's midnight East Coast time, and I'm thinking we should probably just wrap this up. I I I agree. I'm sorry, the summons got out of hand. I'll admit, but uh, I I really like breaking down the hows and whys of people's decisions in the sagas, and mm-hmm. it's not surprising that it almost always comes down to personal security. Oh yeah, no, it's not at all surprising. Um, everyone in these stories is fighting for survival, right? Um, and by extension, they're fighting for the survival of their family, their descendants, right? um, those who are important to them. That's right. And that is what drives the sagas, the drama of the sagas, and why we like to read them. How pithy. Mm. Uh, okay, everyone. Uh, time to put the chairs up, turn off the music, lock the door on your way out. And while you're waiting for the next episode, please take a second and let us know what you think of Lack Style Saga so far. Yeah, uh, no matter whether you're caught up with us or if you're listening to this episode in your carbon-neutral electric flying car in the year 2525, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, what do you think of Hoskell's relationship with Hrut? Is Thord Godi the uh, foster father of the year? And what are we expecting from Olaf Peacock as he grows into manhood and sets out to learn more about his own family's history? Not much, because we barely know the guy yet. But if you do want to get in touch with us, you can reach us by email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com, or you can join the conversation on our Discord page for Saga Thing. Uh, check our uh, social media for links to that. Or maybe visit us on Facebook, where we are Saga Thing Podcast. Um, you can also find us on Twitter, where we are Saga Thing Pod. And of course, there is the WordPress blog, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, where you can find our episodes, a bunch of other garbage, and... You can even comment if you so choose, if you want. Or you can ingratiate yourself with us by offering to foster one of our kids. We've got five of them between us, and they're available at bargain prices. (laughs) All right. I have a daughter uh, going off to college in uh, another – she's like selecting (laughs) colleges, so maybe maybe you want to take that burden on. She's looking at – For the the price of four years tuition, you can have yourself a foster Uh, Well, I'll say she's very smart. She's probably going to go to a good school. Um, It's going to be very expensive. So if you're interested, maybe take her. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sure they, it's a good investment. <laughs> but in the meantime, we're going to be back in a couple of weeks or so. Maybe we'll see. Maybe I'm hoping sooner than later. Uh, we'll have another episode. Optimism. Optimism, please. Yes. Uh, but we'll be back with another episode of Lockstana Saga. In the meantime, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Woo! And there's a lot of talk about seal fucking in this episode. And I'm not Dear sure God. why. It's all, it's all coming from you, I want to point out. <laughs> I mean, we could go back to the tape and see, but, I you know. I think we'll find that I'm right. Maybe it's the liquor now, talking. Now, if we talk about manatees for five minutes, maybe we'll have a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> see, you and I like a different body type. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is supposed to be a serious podcast about sagas, John. Look what you did. Now suddenly we're talking about the sea cow. The sea cow with her wide hips. What? (laughs) (laughs) Look, manatees are just, they're they're just, they're just angels of the ocean. You don't have to suddenly get nasty about them. They're just delightful animals. Oh, I thought, I thought you were implying. I thought you were implying. I'm sorry. No, I read too much into it. They're, they're lovely. Well. Okay, uh, I've been. I lived in Florida. I know what manatees get up to. <laughs> Mostly getting brained <laughs> by ships. <laughs> yeah, that's just their version of foreplay. <laughs> don't, don't. <laughs> oh man. Okay. <laughs>